millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As you know, this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcasting Network. And the Agora Podcasting Network are being sponsored by FlickChat, which is a new app which is actually intended for podcasters. And they've recently added some really great functionality that, you know, if you've checked out the app before... Give it another give it another look. The app is basically chat rooms for your favorite podcasts, and now you can actually listen to the podcast in the chat room, which is pretty cool. Uh, so give FlickChat a look. We've had some interesting conversations on there already. I, I kind of really enjoy it. So um, check it out. Moving on, we have numerous donors and patrons worthy of honor and praise. First up, and by her own request, we have Lady Ellen the Excellent. Ellen. I sent you an email in response to your question. Please check that and get back to me. Then we have patrons. Again, by his own request, longtime friend of the show Rob is now, by his own request, Lord Robert Oolongshanks, Count of Green Tea, Earl of Grey, and holder of the Royal Billy. Bill shall be known from henceforward as Jarl Bill, who has a bad jester. Jarl Bill, who has a bad jester, yes. Okay. Up next, we have Joseph, who shall be known from henceforward as Landgrave Joseph, the Fungus Gnat. Continuing on in our Legion of Honor, we have Brandon, who shall be known henceforward as Prince Brandon, who had a mishap with a straw that one time and everyone laughed. And finally, we have Nick, who shall be known from henceforward and for all eternity as Elector Nick, the Just Looking. Thank you so, so much to all of our donors and patrons, to everyone who has donated or patroned in the past, and to all of you for listening. If you want to learn more about the show, check out the website, wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and check us out on the social medias. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. I've been getting more active with Twitter lately, mostly out of boredom, I think. Uh, but anyway, check me out out there, and good times. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Penryn, 1236, The Bishop's Palace. To all faithful Christians who shall hear these present letters, Walter, by divine mercy, Bishop of Exeter, greets you. We have examined the letters of our predecessor of pious memory, William Brewer, in these terms. To all Christian people, William, by divine mercy, know ye that on behalf of ourselves and our successors, I have conceded and by this charter have confirmed to the good men of our borough, Penryn, and their heirs and assigns, that they may hold their burrage plots freely of us, and for each acre, wholly and properly measured by the payment to us and our successors of twelve pence, by way of rent per year, at the two terms, namely All Saints' Day, November 1st, and May 1st, for all services." We have furthermore conceded that on the surrender of a burgage or on the death of a tenant, they ought to pay a relief of 12d for each complete acre. We wish and order that the said burgesses may have all things specified, together with all liberties and free customs in perpetuity. Given at Penryn, 1236. Quote from The Medieval City by Norman Pounds. Obviously, the original was written by someone else, notably Walter, Bishop of Exeter. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 55, The Class System Part 3, The Commoners Part 2, Cities Part 3, A Narrative of Urban Development Part 2. Ah. How about that name? Really looking forward to being done with this background section. Get back to fun names. Good times.
Miss Fun Names. Two episodes ago, we began our discussion of urbanism in the Middle Ages with a review of urban theory, touching on such classics as agglomeration economics and central place theory. Last time out, I kept the kids entertained by beginning our discussion of urbanism in the Middle Ages, tracing in broad outlines the origins of different kinds of cities in three regions of the post-Roman world. In cities that survived the fall of the empire, we saw how the church helped keep the lights on, bringing in resources from their land holdings and allowing the cities to function as administrative centers. The church bureaucracy became a refuge for commoners and elites alike, at least until those local elites were able to assert control over the lands in the urban hinterlands and resume their function as local oligarchs. This kind of city was very common in southern Europe, with a few examples in that portion of northern Europe that had once been under Roman control. More common in post-Roman Northern Europe were cities founded in the abandoned shells of Roman cities. Though archaeology confirms our documentary record in showing many cities being fully abandoned for centuries at a time, the growing identification of the church with Rome and Rome with legitimacy made these ruins prestigious places to establish a bishop's seat or a noble family's capital. Once these former cities took on a function as an administrative center, settlement generally resumed. But there was a third type of city that was found all over Europe, even in places never conquered by Rome. Spurred on by the development of the Northern Arc of Trade, the foundation of monasteries and castles, and sometimes by sheer demographic need, population agglomerations began to form in places that provided local economic advantages but had no obvious previous settlement. So today we're going to go beyond these bare sketches of these earliest stages of development and look at the factors that led some of these settlements to stabilize, some to expand, and some to disappear. Then we'll move on to discuss the political developments that organized these fledgling cities in their relations with both the outside world, in the form of the Lord, and in terms of their internal society. All of which will set us up nicely for the next time out as we begin to wrap up our look at the medieval class system with a day in the life of the people in the commoner classes. Let us begin. As we covered in our first two episodes, the growth of an urban, urban settlement requires more than a few people bumping into each other at a location. For a settlement to grow, it has to have access to food, water, sanitation, transportation. These things will help prevent restrictions on the population and give the settlement access to the economic activity that will allow people to not spend all their time farming. But equally important are the social structures we humans erect in terms of economic systems, public policy, infrastructure, culture, and local history. These are just as important in driving growth as geographic conditions. To explain what I mean, I think it's time I started giving concrete examples. So let's talk about the Hebrides and the Orkney Islands. These islands off the north coast of the British archipelago are, from a modern perspective, unbelievably remote. Indeed, for monks who were founding monasteries in this general region, that was kind of the point. But as the Viking traders began poking around for tradable resources, they found a network of settlements connected to the mainland by sea and being loaded down with all sorts of tradable goods, notably the monasteries. From the perspective of the monks, the raids that followed were bewildering and horrific, but from the point of view of the economy of the Northern Ark, this was part of a centuries-long process of finding resources, acquiring them by any means necessary, and then trading them on to the east. Soon enough, Vikings had established a major trade depot in the Orkneys, and smaller settlements throughout the Hebrides and the other small islands of the British archipelago. Then the slave trade dried up, just as the far eastern outlets of this trade arc fell apart. And while the political economy of the Nordic region continued to seek to acquire resources and trade them on, by the end of the Viking Age, the principal buyers of Viking goods were no longer other Vikings trading with the distant east, but the very peoples to the south who had previously been the losers in that by-any-means-necessary ethos. Soon enough, it was the Frisian traders at the mouth of the Rhine, with their inland contacts down to Italy, who were their primary customers. And that choke point began to assert power across the region. As a result of this process, the Orkneys ceased to be a convenient collection point for resources coming up out of the Irish Sea. Trade was no longer moving out and around the British Isles on its way east. Now trade was draining south towards the continent. These island communities became the last stop on a trade route whose main focus was the English Channel and the Rhine, which is why these settlements on the Orkneys began their long decline, while the flood-prone and barely inhabitable sandbars of the Low Countries began their rise towards becoming global financial superstars. All of this is to say that while the physical geography of the Rhine Delta and the Orkney Islands didn't really change over the course of the early Middle Ages, the human geography changed, and it changed the shape of their metaphorical world in a way that no local could either control or even really comprehend. 
This wider change produced, in turn, a cascading series of individual choices being made on the local level, as elites in Italy took to trading to boost their material station, and leaders in the Nordic region gradually turned away from slave raiding as their ability to profitably move their cargo declined. Meanwhile, on the Rhine Delta, they realized that they could probably make some real money if they could just stop these floods. On mainland Europe, this changing economic situation had ramifications as well. The collapse of the slave trade definitely caused something of a recession, and disrupted the political economy of the Carolingian Empire, as we've already covered. On the other hand, by the year 1000, things had kind of stabilized. And let's just review the situation in Europe at that moment, because a whole bunch of threads that I've established over the course of the last five years are all sort of coming together now. As we saw in our episodes on the nobility, the European lords had, with the fall of the Carolingian Empire, taken on most political power at the local level. And as we learned in our episodes on the European economy, archaeological evidence suggests that these lords weren't, you know, economic dinosaurs. They were actively managing and investing in their new land holdings. They were building mills, they were building bakeries, etc. This resulted in the bipartite manor system of the Middle Ages, which I suspect had some major productive advantages over the massive slave plantations of Roman antiquity. At least we can say for sure that they had advantages over slave plantations with no slaves. Speaking of slaves, we know that by this time the slave trade had collapsed. While not great for long-distance trade or the profitability of war, an upshot of this was that large portions of the European population were no longer being forcibly dragged away in chains. When we factor in the strength of castles and the inefficiency of the European military system at this time, which we talked about in our Warfare episodes and our episodes on the nobility, we enter into a period where Europe became remarkably stable, despite basically having no government. Now, I need to say, basically had no government, because it's not entirely true. From a political ideology standpoint, at least, the Carolingian Empire never really fell. This is stuff that we covered back in the uh, walking tour episodes and the episodes on the rise of the Etonian dynasty. While practically speaking, Europe was a fractal-like patchwork of noble holdings, these nobles mostly derived their possessions from grants made by the Carolingian clan. And while the claims were not pressed in any realistic way, after the reign of King Arnulf and the Emperor Otto, the Emperor in Germany was acknowledged as the leader of what remained of the Carolingian clan, even though they had no familial relation to them. Long story short, the Emperor in Germany was supposedly leader of the European political system. From the North Sea to Southern Italy, and from the March of Barcelona to the Elbe River, the core areas of mainland Europe were united by a shared Carolingian ideology, and these borders were actually expanding by small amounts every year. They also enjoyed friendly relations with the main political force on the body of the British Isles, which is, of course, the monarchy in Wessex, or England. This all had real-world importance. While the emperor had little practical control outside of Germany and northern Italy, and even in those places, the emperor's control could be extremely limited, as we will find out in future episodes, Europe never had the kind of hard military borders that characterized the relationship between the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate in our economic episodes. What was important about that border? It stopped trade. So there were no borders like that. So while there were tolls everywhere at, you know, every petty lord's little border, and that was certainly annoying, Europe remained the sort of open trade zone that Charlemagne had left it. And the fact that the merchants were complaining about all those tolls meant that there were merchants and they were trading. To me, this all adds up to a pretty clear explanation for what happened next, though I should offer a caveat. I haven't read any real historians who tie all this together as neatly as I'm about to, and that makes me nervous. On the one hand, I'm probably missing something. So, you know, maybe all this is wrong. On the other hand, I can't be the first person who's tied all this together this way, so I'm probably plagiarizing someone. So I'm nervous on a couple different levels, but this is what I got, so here goes. After 900 or so, we know that the population of Europe probably began to grow. In the archaeological and documentary record, we see settlement sizes growing in terms of population, in terms of areas under cultivation, new villages and cities were being founded, and the spaces between villages shrank. This growth would continue, with some setbacks in local areas from the year 1000 to the 1350s. This growth has been debated for years by historians and has been attributed to everything from Emperor Otto's victory at Lechfield to a warming climate. My observation here, this is what I'm nervous about, but my observation here is basically that everything I just said comes together to offer an explanation. It's not one thing, it's all of this. Tens of thousands of Europeans who were previously being hauled away into slavery were now not being hauled away into slavery. 
Investment by the European nobility had settled on the bipartite manor system, which proved to be a way to unite self-sufficient peasant farmers with capital-intensive farming equipment that was supplied by their lords. These advances were consolidated by the fact that warfare was becoming relatively less common, less deadly, and the political order was consolidated into a new status quo of stable-ish competition. All of this served to allow the population to really begin to grow, while keeping the lords under pressure to innovate as best they could. Growing populations can be a double-edged sword. From an ecological standpoint, it means more mouths to feed from the same resources, and if you don't have any new technological innovations, that can be a problem. The pressures that resulted from population growth would ultimately undermine the economic stability of Europe in the long run. As I said, villages in this period expanded their areas under cultivation out into formerly uncultivated areas, which would give them more food in the short term, but unfortunately it provided less space for things like pasturing pigs or gathering woodland products for sale, uh, gathering herbs and stuff in the springtime when before the crops came in. Forests served a real purpose in medieval villages, and reducing the amount of forest land actually did really negatively impact people economically and health-wise. Ultimately, the most densely populated parts of Europe would begin to show really serious and noticeable signs of food stress in the archaeological records as the borders between these villages began to meet and wilderness areas began to disappear. Famines, disease outbreaks, and peasant unrest gradually became more and more common, all leading to the cataclysms of the 1350s, but you will notice that the 1350s are a couple centuries after we're talking about. That's all going to be much later. Those population stresses are a real problem, but in this early stage, around the year 1000 or so, this overall growth was probably a good thing in general. From an agricultural standpoint, rising populations can increase crop yields up to a certain point, because having added hands around means that you can grow crops more efficiently, you can share the labor. From an economic standpoint, rising populations mean more total productivity within a society, and thus more economic activity. Uh, stepping back from the history thing, there is a direct correlation in the economic literature between economic growth and population size in an area, basically regardless of the skill level or the capital possessed by the population. You put more people in an area, there's going to be more economic activity because people need stuff. Turning back to the Middle Ages, the ability of the land to feed this population is a different matter, but as I said, this was a concern for a later century. As more economic activity was happening, as more goods became available overall, we bring in the final link of our causal chain. With all the Carolingian regions of Europe united in an area without hard military borders, there was nothing to prevent the new productivity that was being created by this rise in population from expressing itself in raw economic growth. Trade picked up along the old slaving routes, new trade links were made, and the growing population began to agglomerate in entirely new villages and cities founded in previously uninhabited or sparsely inhabited areas. For the nobles, of course, this economic growth contributed to the resources they were able to take from their holdings. And as we saw in those economy episodes, the nobles of this era were not lazy dinosaurs. They sought to improve their holdings. How might they improve their holdings? Well, they could always build more mills and baking ovens, but as we saw in our economic history series, a lot of that work had already been done by this point. Many encouraged the foundation of new villages, but again, there's only so much land, and we'll get back to this. As we saw in the nobility episodes, uh, conquest was always a very popular option. But as we just said, this was not really a great time for that kind of thing, with castles popping up left and right. So they had to start looking beyond the manor and the military. In the wider world, they found that they could help this growing trade that was going on, which was making them rich in return for very little effort, by offering protection to the merchants traveling through their territory. For a fee, of course. Or they could help improve roads and bridges, thus encouraging more merchant travel. Though, of course, there would need to be tolls to pay for all that hard work by the peasantry. But the biggest cash cow of this period turned out to be the encouragement of markets and fairs. The subject of markets and fairs brings us back to one of the more arcane clarifications I made in the episode about urban theory. See, all of this stuff's coming back up. The part where I noted that customers and producers had to not only be in the same place, but they had to be there at the same time. This seems obvious, but it's harder than you think. If the customer base is large enough, merchants can just set up shop permanently and just hang around waiting for customers. We call these places stores. But in the earliest of the Middle Ages, this was often not the case. They just didn't have the population density or whatever. Indeed, since so much of the economic output of that time and place was agrarian, there was just no way for the farmer to spend all their time in town at a stall hawking vegetables. The farmer needed to 
you know, farm and stuff. When combined with the low overall population densities of the time, it could be very difficult to connect buyers and sellers. So markets and fairs were a way that consumers and producers could manipulate space and time to increase the chances of economic exchange. In the case of local markets, the population of an area would arrange, sometimes with the assistance of the local lord or the church, to all meet at a specific place at a specific time. Generally, this would happen once a week and would only last part of a single day. The location chosen would be somewhere the people in the area would recognize as prominent, and the time would often be some time when they were all gathering, gathering together anyway. Uh, often they were on Sundays. This all makes it something of a chicken and egg question as to whether the markets first made the towns grow large, or whether the size of the town caused the location of the market to be put in that location. I consider it highly likely that the process I described last time of town growth happened in conjunction with the development of markets rather than before them necessarily, but we do have evidence of lords just kind of picking random places as a way to drive growth in their territory, so there are probably no hard and fast rules. Podcast footnote. This practice of founding random markets to increase the value of their holdings got them into trouble. Once it was recognized that markets and fairs drove economic growth, it was soon after realized that if too many markets and fairs were started in the same area, they would undercut each other's business. Laws were established by the higher-up members of the nobility and the monarchs that gave precedence to already existing markets and fairs and required new foundations to get permission from the higher-ups and actively prove that they did not threaten the business of older markets and fairs. This led to no end of lawsuits, and in grand medieval tradition, making accurate determinations of economic harm probably had a lot more to do with personal connections and, you know, bribery than it had to do with, like, a sober assessment of the facts, but the rule was established, and it helped shape whether settlements were or were not allowed to have markets and fairs. All the same, this is another example of how everyone being part of the same Carolingian family was important, even if the government had no compulsive power. The ability of the higher-up lords to sort of just resolve these disputes helped retain a kind of economic efficiency over the long run while limiting the uh, resolution of these disputes through violence. It didn't eliminate a violence, of course. This is still the Middle Ages, after all. Just wait till we get to the guilds. End podcast footnote. However they were founded, these markets would have focused on local goods, and were generally agricultural in nature. Places for local peasants to buy and sell animals, produce, and local handicrafts. At the same time, anyone in the town who was particularly skilled in making higher-end consumer goods would have a nice recurring customer base, so the town baker and blacksmiths would have done a brisk business if they were any good. Such markets would also have been a good place for the sale of bulk imported commodities, things like raw iron, salt, and other materials that might not be available locally, but which were vital to basic subsistence in the Middle Ages. This was all great for business. Even if the market was only on a weekly basis, the village blacksmith would be able to sell more and farm less, allowing them to become more proficient at their craft and get better quality inputs. Anyone in the village who was particularly good at brewing might choose to spend less time on growing their own grain and more time brewing their neighbor's barley into beer for sale at the market. In this way, a small community of people would emerge who did not rely on farming for their daily subsistence, and the village grew into a town. Now, any kind of economic expansion can create losers. If the town blacksmith was really good, he might drive the other blacksmiths in the region out of business. On the other hand, if the town brewer was really bad, it probably wouldn't be too long before one of the villagers coming into the market would come with a few barrels of their own home brew, just to avoid drinking his production. Of course, everyone else at the market would benefit by not having to drink terrible, terrible beer, but the local brewer might not take kindly to that kind of thing, which could lead to conflict and, in the absence of any kind of formal law and order, to violence. Market rules and town guilds would eventually be founded to help control this kind of competition and prevent violence, though they sometimes meant everybody had to drink subpar beer. It also didn't ever entirely eliminate violence. This is still the Middle Ages, after all. Did I just make this joke? We'll come back to guilds later. Just to finish up, it's worth saying that these market towns would generate as much itinerant economic activity as permanent. Because of the irregular nature of the market, merchants selling those necessary bulk good items were likely to just move from market to market over the course of the week, and not just settle down necessarily. These itinerant merchants definitely predated the markets, but the regularity of the markets helped make their business more efficient. Many market towns did eventually become home to one or two families of merchants, who would look around like the prospects and just settle down. But for many, traveling the market circuit was a way of life, and would remain so throughout the Middle Ages. 
Many of the most colorful characters that come down to us out of stories from the Middle Ages belong to this class of itinerant merchant. Monks, bards, beggars, jugglers, knights errant, and troubadours were all people seeking to engage in a regular economic activity, and would have put in appearances, for better or worse, at these markets. They sold the gathered peasantry entertainment, protection, and a variety of other services, and the best way to connect with someone who might be buying was to show up on market day. They were also viewed with a deep level of suspicion by the locals, who often saw them as conmen, thieves, and bandits. To be fair, many of them were. Speaking of fair, fairs were like markets in theory, except taken to an extreme. Generally held yearly instead of weekly, often held on holy days, fairs lasted for weeks at a time and could attract merchants from around the country, even from, you know, around the world. Particularly prominent fairs often had an international draw that shaped the economic system of the entirety of Europe. Merchants would travel hundreds of miles to sell luxury goods, something that distinguished them from the more agriculturally oriented markets, and items with that kind of value sparked both attempts at theft and protection. Primary sources talk about bandits and thieves along the roads, pirates along the rivers, pickpockets in the fairs themselves. Of course, the merchants didn't just take this lying down, and their caravans of merchandise came with armed mercenary companies of riders and crossbowmen. As we discussed in the episode on the medieval military, it was from these commercial and military ventures that the modern idea of a company as a business venture and a company as a military unit both come etymologically. These men of war would ultimately form guilds in major trading centers to help control any potential violence between these armed groups, uh, but guilds are for later. For such an important topic, there's a lot about the fairs that are tantalizingly out of reach. Such fairs have antecedents in late antiquity, with one of the largest of the early Middle Ages taking place at Ephesus in the Eastern Roman Empire. This fair may have been one of the drivers of the rebirth of economic activity in the Adriatic that led to the rise of Venice. But how the idea of fairs made it into Western and Northern Europe is not known. It's not really even known when they started. It's entirely plausible that the fairs were just part of a natural outgrowth of the system of markets, or that the fairs in Northern Europe just never ended after the fall of the empire. We just don't know for sure. Given their economic reach, it's probably not a shock to you that the first fairs in Europe, which were held in Western Francia probably during the height of the Carolingian Empire, led to the growth of major cities like Paris. McCormick makes the point that, while there were no fairs in Eastern Francia, the positioning of Charlemagne's non-permanent courts at frontier locations like Aachen along the Rhine River probably had a similar effect of temporarily stimulating the economy, with the result that these locations too became regional trading hubs. It seems that the regular infusions of economic activity that these fairs and traveling courts caused helped prime the pump of European economic activity and helped establish some of the first major cities in the Frankish world. All of this was, of course, very good for the people collecting tolls on all those merchants heading to all those fairs, which brings us back around to the lords seeking ways to increase the value of their holdings. As I said before, lords would offer protection to merchants along the roads in their territory in return for a fee, but things went a bit further than that. It became so valuable for the lords to have a fair in their territory that if merchants could show evidence of theft in court, the lords would actually pay them for the value of the lost property. Lords took an active interest in making sure that the markets were well-governed and that the merchants did not get cheated. Eventually, lords would make it a policy to sign treaties with each other to ensure safe passage for the merchants in each other's territory. All of this served to reassure merchants that it was safe to make these journeys, with the result that more and more of them did so, and more and more people made money as a result, a certain cut of which made its way into the pockets of the local lords. And to help everyone make money, it eventually became important to gather all of these rights and protections and privileges and treaties together into one place, so that everybody would know what was allowed. And so, the first charters come into our story. Podcast footnote. Not all the lords were this far-sighted. We have enough documentary evidence to be sure that the distinction between a lord's retinue and a bandit gang was often very thin indeed, and this was particularly true of smaller lords who didn't have fairs in their territories. But then again, such brigands could be useful. After all, if the roads became too safe, the merchants might stop just complaining about all those tolls and might start refusing to pay them. So we often find that the smaller lords raiding trade caravans are in a feudal relationship with larger lords that are trying to protect those trade caravans. And those larger lords don't always get hot and bothered about the odd raid, especially if it technically happened outside their territory, and super especially if they got a cut of the proceeds. End podcast footnote. As I've said before, the rise of charters coincides with the rise of writing in the legal system. This revived interest in writing for legal purposes is both very easy and very difficult to pinpoint. 
The monastic schools of the early Middle Ages had preserved writing, and the human products of these schools understood the value of writing for preserving ideas and judgments over time. Given the corporate nature of these communities, this was important. We can also say with some surety that the royal courts of Northumbria, Rome, Wessex, and especially the Franks under Charlemagne played a major role in disseminating the idea of the legal value of uh, written documents across Europe. As we discussed in the episodes on Adelaide, the revived court of the Etonians probably played a major role in consolidating this interest in writing and continuing to disseminate it. But how, why, and how quickly this change was disseminated into the various royal and noble houses of Europe is a huge topic beyond even my scope. What we can say is that the first charters start to show up in the 900s, and by 1100, charters are very common. These charters are a vital piece of evidence as to how European society functioned in this era. But wait, I hear you proclaim. Ben, you've complained about charters for two episodes now, and you're explaining a bit about where they come, came from, but you missed something. What is a charter, anyway? Well, as you know, charters are a social construct... Wait, no. That's, that's not right in this case. Um, let's go back. Okay. Um, okay, let's go back to ancient Rome. No. Okay, actually, that's, that's not true this time, either. Okay, uh, this is actually a new one. Charters are legal documents, basically contracts that set out the rights and responsibilities of contracting parties and any financial obligations that are involved. Yes, the concept of contracts and legal documents does go back to Rome, but that's not what we're talking about today. It's not all about Rome. Charters could be provided to allow a settlement to hold a market, or to establish a monastery, or to permit the foundation and government of a city. The important thing in our context is that one of the parties had the right to grant charters due to their possession of a territory and all the legal rights and responsibilities that went with that, while the other party was, from a legal standpoint, often called into existence by the grant of a charter. City charters tell us who governed a city, how, and what their relationship was with the feudal authorities on whose land the city was founded. So you can see how generations of historians came to attach such importance to charters and see them as an absolute requirement for the existence of a city. Without a charter, how did the city know who it was? Unfortunately, most of these early charters are forgeries. Now wait, wait, sit down, sit down. Don't storm off in an angry huff. We need to talk about this. Because even the nature of these forgeries is important. Let me give you an example. The fair at Saint-Denis was located, appropriately enough, at the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which is a neighborhood in Paris today, but which was a monastic community a few miles outside of town at the time. The fair is considered the earliest fair in Western Europe. The earliest record is dated to 710, when the Frankish king Childebert issued a charter giving the fair protection in return for taxes from the fair goods going to the Abbey except that this document is clearly forged due to the language and references to anachronistic ideas. The document is still one of the earliest mentions of a fair, but it can probably be best dated to the 900s when it shows up in a legal case between the monks and the emperor Louis the Pious. This is appropriate enough because historians think that this is what they call a pious forgery. Why a pious forgery? Well, it wasn't in reference to the emperor. We usually assume that a forger is someone who's just lying to pull the wool over the eyes of a dupe, but that's not always the case. Pious forgeries are a bit different. While still a fraudulent document in terms of the actual date and authorship of its composition, this kind of document contains things that the forgers legitimately thought were true, but which had either not been written down, or which were written down on a document that was subsequently lost, or something like that, so someone had to go back and recreate it. We think, in other words, that the monks of Saint-Denis weren't just making things up, but trying to hurriedly write down the way things had been in their experience, and then backdate that experience to a time that was either conveniently long ago, or when they earnestly thought the tradition had begun. These kinds of forgeries are very common in this time period, and the forgeries appear in everything from city charters to fair charters. This inability to prove the antiquity of contemporary custom will become important in our look at the investiture controversy, but that's another show. The bottom line is that these pious forgeries can't be taken as a causal factor in the emergence of a city or fair. As I said last time out, fairs and cities didn't come to existence because someone signed this document, and so we can't really say for sure what first caused these settlements to be founded or these commercial gatherings to start. But what we can say from these charters is that once the monks at Sandini needed to protect their rights in court, they already had some idea of what those rights were, and some of those rights had probably already been granted by the Lord in one form or another in the past. For city charters, there's usually some indication that the Lord is issuing this charter to some group that already in some way exists. Like, say, the merchants of such and such a place. I make this charter out to the merchants of such and such a place. 
those merchants had no legal character before the Charter, so in some sense the Charter does call them into being. But from a realistic standpoint, the fact that the Lord is giving them a Charter probably means that such and such a place exists already, and that it doth contain merchants. So if Charters can't tell us much about the early process of city formation, what can they tell us? Well, when combined with other sources of information, like literature and legal records, they tell us two things very clearly. They tell us about the relationship between the Lord and the city, at least as far as it was understood at the time when the Charter was um, written down. And second, they tell us about the relationship between the various peoples that lived in these cities and each other. To start with that first point. In the received narrative, it's often said that the term town or city is as much a term for a political entity as it is for a collection of buildings. It's true that in the charters, we see that the settlements have engaged in an exchange of privileges and duties with the lord. In the same way that an individual peasant family would agree to pay a certain rent in return for using the lord's land, the town or city would pay a fee to the lord in return for being able to have their own government, or hold a market, or build city walls, or whatever. The corporate nature of this relationship between the Lord and the collective entity of the town or city is genuinely distinctive and is emphasized as unique in the received narrative, but not quite so fast. To me, in my reading of these sources, this relationship between the Lord and the people of the cities and towns isn't unique. While the Lord definitely has an individual relationship with peasant families, and mostly did not with individual residents of a city, it's equally common for members of the village to be addressed as a collective in regulations passed down from the Lord. So, the Lord would be owed eight bushels of grain by Farmer John, but all the members of the village would owe the Lord a bridge toll paid in salt every year. Just as telling, and as we covered in our episodes on common landed peasants, the villagers behaved as a collective unit on their own initiative in many surviving legal records. This was particularly true when the Lord was themselves a collective entity, like a monastery, or when the Lord was an absentee. In these situations, the villagers would all get together under the leadership of some key people to express their grievances and negotiate. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your Lord? We don't have a Lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. Now, the timelines can be fishy here because all of the legal records sort of come into focus only after a certain time, and so it may be a mistake to infer older village behavior from later legal records. But it seems likely to me that the corporate behavior of medieval settlements in the period from 1,000 to, 12, from 1000 to 1200 to 1300 evolved naturally from earlier village societies. My take is this. As these villages grew in size and economic importance, it was no longer practical for lords to manage relationships with each individual family, and so the existing internal power structure of the village was given more official recognition and power by the lord in return for managing the lord's relationship with the individuals in the settlement. So rather than the lord having to keep track of the thousand or so people who might own rent, that issue would be left to the leaders of the town, and the lord would just ask the leaders of the town for a lump sum. This may seem like a major change, but in most villages, it's not like the Lord was there all the time. They had stuff to do and battles to fight and widows to extort. It just didn't make sense for the Lord to spend their time trying to manage all of these individual relationships. Better to let the leading families sort out the specifics for themselves and free the Lord to focus on the widows. Once these places became lucrative enough, or complicated enough, or writing became trendy enough to require it, this relationship was probably just written down, and doing so benefited all the parties involved in the long run. These charters helped codify the rights uh, that the people in the town could expect and made life more predictable. For the Lord, codifying these relationships helped to streamline the administration of their lands and make them more profitable. This is why you see people like William the Conqueror, who had taken over a land which contained many cities without charters that he respected, just like handing out charters like candy. Almost all of these charters were based on a handful of already existing charters from Normandy that he understood and that he liked. He knew that he could benefit from these charters, and the way it was structured was something that he was familiar with and comfortable with. So just to keep things simple, he just copied them and handed them out. Now, I do need to quickly clarify one thing. The process I'm describing of gradual urbanization eventually being given recognition by a charter wasn't universal. There are three key exceptions. In Italy and other parts of Southern Europe, and this is a big one, the cities didn't need your dang charter. They chartered themselves and dared you to come do anything about it. We'll talk more about Italian cities in a bit. The other major exceptions were in Iberia and on the eastern fridge of Frankish civilization. In these areas, indigenous populations had been subjugated by a slow-moving conquest that often involved extreme differences between cultures in terms of social organization and religion. 
In short, the local population's rights were not being respected, and settlers were often brought in by the new lords to settle the territory. Things were more complicated in Eastern Europe, but for the sake of brevity, let's just assume that this was basically the same idea, which is terra nullis, effectively a blank slate. And these lords did a fair bit of real urban planning. They selected the site, they laid out the properties, drew lines on a map, and then recruited settlers to come in from across Europe to live in this new place. Now, amazingly enough, they did. They People did come in. Uh, and I say amazingly enough because given the technology at the time, the communications, and the massive, massive xenophobia that peasants at this time had towards anyone who was an outsider from their village, it's amazing to a certain extent that they found people willing to make this change and take that risk to go outside their villages and settle in a new place. But the process was aided by a few factors. First, a lot of the settlers were probably natives who just agreed to live in the lifestyle being peddled by the new lord. Oh, you want me to be German? Okay, cool. Second, this is all in the context of massive demographic growth that we've already talked about. So there was almost certainly an excess of population that was, you know, the new economy wasn't working out so hot for them. So they were willing to take this risk and get a new start. Third, many of those recruited came from the Lord's older holdings. You know, the, the Lords who were conquering these new territories weren't, you know, coming from England and flying into Iberia to take over half of Spain. They were people who were already on the one side of the border and just pushing south. So it was easy enough for them to get settlers from, you know, a mile back to come over here. But fourth, and most important for this discussion, the Lord would offer charters to villages and cities alike with extremely generous terms for the relationship between the Lord and the peasants. Rents were low, labor duties were few, and the, the overall legal structure was much more fair than in more traditional villages. Third and lastly, we have villages founded on similar terms in wilderness areas of Francia and Britain, but nothing of the kind of scale seen in Germany and Iberia. Also, these kinds of settlements may have represented informal foundations of peasants who were fleeing crowded conditions in their home village and were sort of just tempted back into a relationship with the Lord via the offer of generous terms. For our purposes, we can just conclude by saying that these new urban foundations, be they in Germany or Iberia or Sanford, retained much of the same relationship between the Lord and the city as existed in other places. Namely, the leaders of the city would maintain law and order, prevent cheating, and see to the settlement's defense in return for paying certain regular dues to the Lord. The specifics of these rights, duties, and the fees involved varied extremely wildly from place to place, but this summary sort of captures the spirit of the relationship. Podcast footnote. Some cities were never given charters. This is the most damning element to the critiques of the charter obsession in the received narrative. To be sure, settlements that didn't have charters wanted them very badly. We have a lot of letters from towns that had no charters begging to have charters. But it was absolutely not required. Economics, even political economics, is what causes settlements to develop into towns and cities, not political rights in and of themselves. In this context, please let me re-emphasize the place of charters in this discussion from a methodological standpoint. Charters are evidence of social behavior, not really a behavior on their own. End podcast footnote. Okay, so we've talked about the external relationship between the city and the lord, but what about the relationships within cities? How are the cities themselves governed? Older historians tended to say that cities were originally governed by trading guilds, and that other guilds split off from the original citywide guild over time as populations and business complexity increased. There are some interesting and suggestive commonalities between guilds and city government, but most modern historians have discounted this story. The evidence we have of guilds shows them evolving much later, and there's no evidence of them splitting off from a city's governing apparatus like some sort of amoeba. This is a bit frustrating, because the evidence we have doesn't provide for many alternative theories. City charters are the closest we have to a clear explanation of city government, and the earliest charters are the thinnest on detail. Some just call for the leading citizens to ensure order, without spelling out how or even what a leading citizen might be. Most call for the existence of some kind of city council or board to oversee administration, without saying how the board should be constituted or what institutions they would even use to maintain order. Which is all, I guess, you know, fair enough for the Middle Ages. The Lord wasn't doing anything better back in the villages. The narrative I have suggested, that city administration evolved from village administration, offers some explanations for this lack of specificity, and also suggests some mechanisms that might have filled in the gaps. Most villages had a handful of wealthy families that controlled such political power as peasants were allowed to have in the bipartite manor system. 
there were usually individuals in the villages who helped, you know, collect taxes and organize labor duties, and the leading families would sort of trade off holding that position. When an individual was responsible for these kinds of organizational activities in the village, uh, they were not necessarily particularly popular for having to perform that duty, but they were able to enforce their decisions by, you know, having the power of the Lord behind them. And the fact that they were just, you know, the wealthiest guy in town had a lot of influence and probably one of the larger households in town. Worst case scenario, they'd have a lot of people at their back. It would make sense that the families that were already sort of performing these duties in the sort of village that was on the verge of becoming a town would look at these charters and view them as a way to consolidate their positions and take on expanded roles. They might even have resisted a charter with more explicit institutions, since it might cut into their power. This does seem to be confirmed by some sources where it looks like the earliest cities with charters had no mechanism for adding new members into their governing body. If you were a rich peasant before urban consolidation, and the process of urban consolidation put you on the town council, well, you were pretty much set for life, and you didn't really face any competition. The powers wielded by these bodies were often limited, at least at first, to those explicitly described in the charter. The town council was able to make judicial decisions within the town in order to maintain law and order. They could get together and figure out how funds would be gathered to pay their fees to the lord. And that's all I can really say for sure as a generalization. In some cities, the lords didn't even concede the right to build a defensive wall without further financial contributions. In most places, it was not clear who was responsible for public hygiene. Churches, building churches, would often be a pet project of a handful of leading families. Even the process of getting criminals in front of the town court often required the leading families to get their household members together, go find the person, and then just physically drag them in. In some cities, none of these powers were granted outside of the fair season. Obviously, this was all ad hoc, and it functioned about as well as you would expect. We'll get into the living conditions next time, but suffice it to say now that they were extremely bad, and violence was very common. In Italian cities, this lack of law enforcement and the veneer of political power being vested in the hands of wealthy aristocratic families, many of whom were of Germanic descent, led to a culture of blood feuds opening up, and open violence was very common between major families, who were bickering over resources. Families hired armed retainers, and the family mansions were fortified towers, basically castle keeps constructed inside the city walls. In some places, they went so far as to have ballista and other war engines mounted in these towers to allow the noble families to clear the city streets in a hurry if they needed to. Things in Northern Europe never got quite this bad, but in some places, and at some times, things certainly looked dangerously similar. Obviously, the situation was untenable, and while medieval cities would never be what a modern person would call safe or hygienic, blind and grasping efforts to improving the situation began early and continued in small steps until the modern age began to bring real solutions to the problems of urbanization. In this process, every city functioned differently. Venice is a famous example of a place where the early chaos was filled in relatively quickly with extremely elaborate constitutional arrangements. And while the most complex forms of this constitution came only at the end of the Middle Ages, even during the early Middle Ages, the institutions of Venice were remarkable for their relative complexity and the loyalty of the city's leaders and populace to these forms of government. More than a few potential tyrants, or suspected potential tyrants, found that this willingness to defend their institutions extended to the point of an occasionally frenzied, bloodthirsty paranoia. While Venice was to prove remarkable in the longevity of its institutions, even if these institutions were enforced by frenzied, bloodthirsty paranoia, it was not entirely unique. Novgorod and the lands of the Rus had a remarkably similar constitutional arrangement that its leaders were similarly devoted to preserving. As we discussed in the walking tour episodes, it was only the rise of Muscovy that ended this arrangement. Closer to home, most Italian cities went through an oligarchic period similar to what I just described in Northern Europe, before engaging in republican experiments similar to those in Venice. In most places, these reforms were very complicated by wider, wider regional geopolitics. Imperial attempts at imposing a feudal social order would continue through much of the early Middle Ages, spoiler alert, and this would limit the scope of governmental reform in the local city governments. Ultimately, the empire's authority waned, and constitutional experiments began, but sadly, this period was often brief. The rise of energetic Republican governments in this period also saw these governments begin to fight each other and gobble each other up, with the end result that larger cities in the peninsula began to conquer the smaller ones and impose governments. So the scope for true constitutional experimentation was very limited. 
That said, the larger cities in Italy, like Florence and Milan and Rome, began experiments with Republican governments that forced the old aristocratic oligarchy to begin sharing power with a new class of wealthy merchants and even gasped the population at large. This narrative will be running in the background when we begin our dive into the investiture controversy. Returning to Northern Europe, the kinds of governmental reforms your city was able to engage in and the effectiveness of these reforms varied greatly from city to city and were greatly affected by the specific things that had led to the city's growth in the first place. For example, cities like Paris, London, and Rome, which played host to significant national political powers, were obviously deeply shaped by those entities. In London, for example, a fairly sophisticated for the time governing apparatus was permitted to the city, probably in return for valuable financial and political support for the crown. On the other hand, records indicate that the king would mess around in city affairs basically whenever something happened in the city that he didn't like, or when he needed to put the city's merchants over a legal barrel to extract some quote-unquote loans. As I said in an earlier podcast footnote, there were other cities that were never actually given charters by any lord. They existed solely through the economic forces that incentivized their growth, often due to access to certain natural resources, and their method of governance is entirely opaque. If they had any institutions, they must have been very rough and ready indeed. Most places were somewhere between these extremes, and I will return to generalizations for the sake of brevity. In most places, the ability of a closed oligarchy to govern entirely by itself was limited in time. People would die, and situations would change. Very, very early on, wealthy merchants who were excluded from the initial formation of the city government began to marry into the local noble families, something which would grant that family admission to the city council if the other members of the council knew it was good for them. In other places, it was just easier to govern with all those of a certain quality, operating inside the walls of power rather than outside them. In many cases, civil unrest resulted in some form of elective institution. But in no case should we see the city governments of this period as particularly democratic. Even Venice went to extraordinary lengths to use layer upon layer of electoral college scheme to keep power in the hands of those citizens with the greatest financial stake in the government. Through a variety of schemes and arrangements, this was true in almost all medieval cities. The powers these city governments held also grew over the course of the Middle Ages. By the 1300s, most had some ability to levy taxes, administer justice, enforce laws, control public health, and see to the collective defense. Unfortunately, the city leaders had not really figured out the importance of a bureaucracy in the exercise of these kinds of powers. For example, in most cities it was recognized that the town council could issue laws that governed things like waste removal. But because the administration of these cities was very small, usually this uh, effort at passing hygiene laws consisted of passing laws and relying on the vigilance of members of the town council for enforcement. For example, if a city banished people making leather to outside the city walls, which is very common because leather making is very smelly, if such a law was passed, the only way to make sure this happened was for the town council members to walk around yelling at people. If a certain tanner was particularly intransigent, the city council could call together a mob or a militia, which was all too often the same thing, and drive them out. But if the offending tanner was owned by one of the city councillors, well, you might have a problem there. We will again get into the full ramifications of all this next time, with a special focus on the consequences of the lack of police forces and public hygiene, but for now I should just reiterate that life could be pretty miserable. This was not entirely unique to the Middle Ages. As I noted in the episodes on the creation of medieval villages, pre-modern urban populations almost always had a negative native population growth. They almost never had more kids than people who died. The ability of European cities to grow was entirely down to their ability to attract migration in from the countryside. Of course, this means that the towns were full of strangers, something which did nothing to contribute to social harmony and law and order in a society without institutions and police. And it's from this misery that the last element of the medieval European social order emerged, the guild. Guilds are a huge topic, and given that I am already running really long, I hope you'll forgive me for cutting it short. Guilds likely started as a cross between social clubs and mutual aid societies. Kind of like how the Elks Club or the Freemasons are supposed to be a way for young men to make business connections, except that these clubs would also provide you with medical care if you got hurt, and would provide your widow a pension if you died while cutting stone. These clubs started informally, probably amongst simple kinship groups, but rapidly evolved to specialize in certain trades, and began issuing rules to their members about who could be employed, the quality standards required for work in a city, and set out a, a, the training regimen a person needed to go through before they could be a full member of the club. 
Given the lack of police and institutions, it also wasn't long before the guilds organized themselves for mutual defense and started picking up weapons. And long story short, most guilds ended up getting their own charters, either from the lord directly or from the city itself if the city knew what was good for them. Guilds served a variety of functions that was as varied as the cities in which they lived. In some cities, there weren't enough different kinds of work for there to be distinction between different trade guilds. If you only have one brewer, one blacksmith, and one shoemaker, you aren't going to have separate guilds for the brewers, the blacksmiths, and the shoemakers. In these places, the role of the guild was much more akin to those that of the, the early mutual aid societies. They helped ensure stability for the middle-class residents of the town who were not rich enough to serve in the city council, but who had spare income to allow for leisure for this kind of organization, and who you know, wanted to, to govern some aspects of day-to-day -day life that the town council didn't seem interested in touching. On the other hand... Cities with highly developed economies could have ridiculously specific guild systems. Paris had guilds that represented the people who made only part of certain specific garments, which were then sold on to members of a different guild to be finished. These guilds controlled the number of master artisans who could work in a given industry in a city, something which helped keep prices high, since the part of the, the guild's charter was an agreement that only master artisans could have shops that produced goods in that city. Theoretically, the quality control standards that these guilds maintained also meant that the high prices were rewarded with better products, though eyewitness reports of the results are mixed. The guilds usually described the educational process required to become a master, which is to say a person who could fully function as a business owner in that trade. Generally, this involved several years as an apprentice, then work as a journeyman, until a slot as a master opened up. Journeymen had all the skills of a master, but because the number of masters was limited, they often had to travel around on journeys, working in other people's shops until they found an open place and their journeying ended. Later on in the Middle Ages, there would be a huge buildup of apprentices and journeymen waiting for master positions, which led to labor unrest and violence, but in this early phase, that kind of thing was fairly less common. What was common was that these guilds played a major role in organizing their urban societies in a wide variety of ways. In many cities, core functions of city government were given over to the guilds. For example, the highly militarized guild members would sometimes be given responsibility for maintaining law and order in certain districts of the city. More often, the guilds would each be assigned to ensure the proper maintenance of, like, roads in a certain area or sections of the city wall, or to provide a certain number of troops during wartime. The guilds in the city would compete to fulfill these obligations and took pride in doing a good job. One does suspect, though, that attacking the part of the wall maintained by the tanners might be a wiser move than attacking the part of the wall maintained by the masons. Just a thought. Many people in these cities would not have been well represented by this city organization. With no ties to the old families of the town council, nor to the middling artisans who ruled the guilds, a new migrant to the city faced a potentially hard process of adjustment. Nonetheless, as I indicated earlier, thousands and tens of thousands made this move every year. And while many met quick and sticky ends, many more made a life for themselves, at least for a little while, before the lack of public hygiene got to them. How did these people live? What did the wealthy cloth merchant eat for dinner? How did the poor peasant farmer find food and shelter? And where did the parish priests administer to their flocks? The answer to these questions are all for the future. For today, let's wrap it up. Today we saw how the early settlements of Northern Europe began to grow during the demographic expansion during the years from 900-1200. Some villages established markets which helped them grow into towns. Others grew simply because of a good position or control of a natural resource. In any case, lords learned to value the money that they could make by protecting the trade routes that had survived the recession that followed the collapse of the slave trade and which directed itself to these growing market towns. Somehow, fairs were established in parallel to this whole process, which sent the growth of some of these settlements into overdrive. In other cases, continued growth was more mundane. But in all cases, the arrangements that had served to govern these settlements as villages were probably expanded piecemeal by the lords, seeking to improve their profits, and eventually the old ad hoc arrangements were codified into written charters. These charters were very sparse, and the arrangements that actually governed day-to-day -day life in the cities were as unique as the cities themselves. In Italy, rule by bishops was followed by rule by aristocratic oligarchs. The situation was stabled somewhat by the persistent rule of the Germanic Empire, but when the empire's power in Italy fell, spoiler alert, the old oligarchs were soon forced to share power. 
Many of the republics that sprang up were extinguished just as quickly as they arose as a result of a process of conquest by their neighbors, but in the larger cities, constitutional experimentation continued. In Northern Europe, by contrast, oligarchic arrangements persisted for centuries. While some form of social mobility crept into most cities fairly early on, de facto oligarchies ruled in most places for most of the Middle Ages. These town councils had surprisingly limited power due to the lack of an administrative bureaucracy. To a large extent, they relied on guilds to carry out many day-to-day -day tasks, from keeping the city walls repaired to taking care of orphans. Next time out, we will try to look at how these people lived in a bit more detail. This will see me delving into the primary sources with direct readings a lot more than I usually do, and hopefully that is something you will enjoy. Until then, however, thank you for listening to Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.